Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Thyroid Cancer, New, Tre New Trends in Treatment. And today's program is a partnership with Thikai, uh, uh, Thyroid Cancer Survivors Association, Inc., and we're delighted to be partnering with them on today's important program. And we will be hearing from the Executive Director, Gary Bloom, later in the program about um, this organization, which really is a remarkable organization. Um, today's program is supported by a contribution from Lilly, and we really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, I just want to let you all know that we have over 150 participants on the program today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Ghana, and the United Kingdom. So it is a global call as well. And we're delighted that you have chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mary Sibilek. And Dr. Sibilek is Professor, Division of Endocrine, Head and Neck Surgery, Emory University. Department of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery, and Atlanta Veterans Medical Center, VAMC. And Dr. Sevelek will be addressing an overview of thyroid cancer in the context of COVID, seasonal flu, and RSV, diagnosis and staging, and updates on surgical treatment for thyroid cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sevelek. Hello, it is my great honor to be invited to participate uh, in this teleconference, and I'm really excited to um, convey what I understand about these topics, but also to answer anybody's questions. I do apologize ahead of time. I have done my best to find a quiet uh, location to participate. Please let the moderators know if, um, if it is difficult to hear me or if there is too much um, distracting noise. Um, so, Jump, jumping right in, um, I don't know how many of us remember the trauma and fear of three and a half years ago, but when we were first learning about the pandemic and the, the virus that was raging around the world, um, this actually really impacted medical care and medical decisions. And so I want to share with you uh, a wide, widely disseminated email uh, dated March 24, 2020. Try to remember what it felt like back in March of 2020. Um, we didn't know much about this. Um, we didn't know much about this disease. We knew it was scary and had a high mortality. So very quickly, the American Head and Neck Society's endocrine surgery section issued some guidelines about safe management of patients who were recently diagnosed with thyroid cancer or other thyroid diseases. And this was done to protect the patients, number one, protect the healthcare workers, number two, 
and to thoughtfully um, use the limited resources that were available for healthcare at that time. So just as a reminder, at that time, thyroid surgery was considered to be imperative to get on the schedule if there was life-threatening or severely symptomatic Graves' disease or hyperthyroidism, if there was a goiter causing airway compromise where the person couldn't breathe well, if there were thyroid cancers that were imminently threatening the life or health of the patient, or if there was a very rapid or aggressive thyroid cancer suspected. So those were the reasons to put people on the schedule. Um, there were some other things such as um, hyperparathyroidism that where you couldn't control the calcium, that's another organ. But overall, it was recommended to delay the surgery for patients with well-differentiated thyroid cancer, even up to six months, six weeks, two months, whatever it took to better have access to resources in the hospital. And I can tell you, the science tells us that that does not threaten the cure rates or the patient's longevity, but it takes a toll on your psychological health. It's, um, it is very anxiety-provoking to think you have cancer, but you cannot access health care. It's also anxiety-provoking for the surgeon and other healthcare members uh, because it's very unfamiliar to say, hey, I have a patient with cancer, but I can't, I can't schedule the case. That was very anxiety-provoking. So I think the health consequences of anxiety are difficult to measure and very real. Well, let's fast forward to now. Now it's November 2023. Um, it's a very different public health situation. Many of us um, have uh, developed natural immunity. Many of us are, are vaccinated um, several uh, times and with boosters for COVID. Um, most hospital systems in the, in the United States have reverted back to pretty much baseline operations. So now it's a very different context when we discuss COVID, but flu, seasonal flu, and RSV are also viruses that can impact a patient's health, respiratory status, and can potentially impact how they, uh, how they need to move forward to schedule um, cancer surgery. So since we're mostly back to baseline, hopefully with more precautions than before the pandemic, um, we still have to boil everything down to the patient's health. So if any of these infections are still impacting the patient's ability to breathe and ventilate well or get oxygen to, into one's bloodstream, if you're still coughing, if you still have a fever, you're not stable or healthy enough to have cancer surgery unless those other life-threatening conditions uh, exist. And one of my hospital systems, the anesthesiologists, are very careful, and they really actually impose on us, if possible, a six-week period of time from an, an infection that affects the respiratory system to the day of surgery. Now, we, we work around that a lot because many people recover from respiratory infections much faster than six weeks. But that's still something we work out between the patient, the patient's condition, the anesthesiologist, and our healthcare team to do what's best for the patient. 
and to move forward as quickly as we can with thyroid cancer surgery to keep it in context of avoiding delays that could impact the cure of the disease. So that's, that's my, my um, sort of summary. Excuse me. Sorry about the noise. That's my summary of the, of, of the current situation with regard to upper respiratory viral infections. It's, um, it, you know, it always goes back to the safety and health of the patient, along with how quickly we need to get that person to the operating room. So the second topic I'm really, really glad to talk about is basically a review, but also some comments about how we're evolving quickly into how we diagnose thyroid cancer and how it's staged, especially relative to other kinds of cancer. Many of my patients who are newly diagnosed with thyroid cancer, they hear that C word and it's very frightening. It's hard to step back and try to understand the nuances or differences between well-differentiated thyroid cancer and many other cancers we hear about, like colon or lung or bad skin cancers, et cetera. So another factoid we know is when somebody hears bad news, medical bad news, their ability to remember everything that was discussed at that first conversation is, is limited because of anxiety. And so I always encourage my patients to write down detailed lists of questions. I absolutely encourage doing your own research and really taking or, or meeting with a thyroid cancer specialist who can take the, take the time to answer those questions. So first of all, you'll hear this a lot. If you have thyroid cancer, it's a good cancer to have. And that's, and, and that's sort of generally true, but it can be almost dismissive sounding when your healthcare providers tell you that. Because quite frankly, no cancer is good. But there is a continuum of survivable, curable cancers all the way up to the worst kind that aren't able to be successfully treated. So your healthcare provider, along with you and your family, can hopefully have enough time to really understand where you fall on this continuum. And it should be noted that well-differentiated thyroid cancer most often can be picked up very incidentally. It can be picked up um, on a scan that's being done for something else. It can be picked up because you have a good primary care doctor who feels your neck and feels a lump. You, may, you yourself may feel a lump in your neck. And this is often the entry point into diagnosis and staging of, of thyroid cancer. So once there's a lump, then we should also keep in perspective that that may represent a thyroid nodule, and most thyroid nodules are benign. That's a, a big thing to, to keep in mind. We've established, and that's reinforced on our latest guidelines, that ultrasound of the neck by someone very familiar with what thyroid nodules look like is the best imaging or best, um, it's not an x-ray because it's not radiation, but it's really the best imaging study to determine whether your thyroid nodule needs a biopsy and to give you some sense of the risk of cancer. And this, is, this is, can't be overstated. So there, 
we, we just updated some guidelines on how, how your healthcare providers move forward with getting those critical ultrasounds using the view of the nodule on the ultrasound to determine whether a biopsy is needed and then how to move forward to a biopsy. In general, CAT scans are not needed at the outset unless there is something else going on, such as an additional lump in the neck or if there's anything you and your doctor are very concerned about, such as a change in your voice, a change in swallowing, pain, because actually most early thyroid cancers aren't painful. If there is a fairly long developing time period where these symptoms uh, appeared, um, or if there are other extenuating circumstances, in general, CAT scans are not the first thing that's, that's ordered. It's also of note that PET scans, PET-CT, um, which many people have, have heard of being used widely for cancer staging, that is not routinely used for well-differentiated thyroid cancer. And I have many new, newly diagnosed patients who come to me and they'll, they'll ask, why, why aren't we getting a PET scan? I thought that's what you do for cancer. And the reason for that is well-differentiated thyroid cancer doesn't usually show up on a PET scan. So whether there are lymph nodes or other metastatic disease, a PET scan may not show it at all. And, it, and that is because, think of the word differentiation. A well-differentiated cancer acts more like its original tissue and less like an aggressive, rapidly growing cancer, which is what PET scans are good at, good at locating. So those are the imaging studies that are generally used in the process of diagnosing and staging well-differentiated thyroid cancer. Ultrasound is the best. CAT scans are needed under, under certain circumstances, and PET scans are not routinely used. Then once that nodule looks like it needs a biopsy, there are some scoring systems that determine that. There's TIRADS, which is a numerical scoring system that's put out by the radiology uh, profession to help look at different features to determine whether a biopsy is needed. And this year's brand, uh, update in guidelines for nodule management really put a lot of emphasis on something very, very helpful, and that's called gene sequencing. If you get a needle biopsy, which is how a biopsy is done, is with a, it's called a fine needle biopsy, which means it's very small, the, the cells that are removed in fine needle biopsies, if there is any inability to say it's completely benign or completely malignant, then it's in an intermediate category. And the newer guidelines really support, if at all possible, send those intermediate cells away for gene sequencing or looking for mutations that can help you better determine whether this is malignant or benign. And then if it's not completely clear yet, often gene sequencing will give a percentage. There's a 70% risk of malignancy. There's a 40% risk of malignancy. And then the, the conversation I have with my patients is, well, you know, it's not 100%, but we have to look at the odds. And everybody's different in what kind of a gambler they are. 
I have some patients who say, well, 70% risk, that means I have 30%. Oh, sorry about that. So I was actually talking about the main staging differences, and that is related to the impact of lymph node involvement on cure and survival in thyroid cancers. So many of you who uh, are very familiar with uh, tumor staging, staging is is also calculated based on the size or, or type of the original tumor, whether lymph nodes are involved, and whether there is metastatic disease elsewhere in the body. And thyroid cancer is one of the exceptions to how lymph node involvement is, is calculated as far as its impact on staging. So lymph node involvement is actually has a lower number N1A or N1B as compared to other can non-thyroid cancers. And that's an important thing to keep in mind too because that's a very common question patients have. What is the stage of my cancer? And just remember that in thyroid cancer, because it's more curable, more survivable, those numbers sound different and better than other cancers like colon or lung cancer. So my third topic is an exciting um, topic because I'm a surgeon. So my third topic is updates in surgical management of thyroid cancer. And this is exciting because the trend that we have seen over the last 15 to 20 years is something called de-escalation. When I was first training, if somebody had even a suspicion for thyroid cancer, they'd get their whole thyroid removed. There really wasn't much room for negotiation and, and the concept of leaving behind half or some of the thyroid gland was considered hazardous or risky to the rate of cancer cure. However, um, especially um, based on very, very good science coming out of the larger, uh, larger uh, academic centers, it was discovered that in low-risk patients, patients who are... Who, who are, um, meet certain criteria and whose cancers look low risk, in other words, well-differentiated papillary thyroid cancer and not very big, those cancers don't need to have the, the whole thyroid gland removed. Fast forward to even more recently, there are certain patients who have proven thyroid cancer who don't need to have any treatment, and that's called active surveillance. So this has been a very huge change in how surgery is determined for well-differentiated thyroid cancer. And what this means to me over the trajectory of my career is that it's much more patient-centered, it's much more nuanced, and the bonus is most patients have choices. They don't have to be tied into some uniform cookbook recommendation for all thyroid cancer patients. Their circumstances, their age, their health, the size of their cancer, what part of the gland it's in, all these things put together make a custom patient-centered um, surgical recommendation. And this is really, really much, much better than it used to be. There are also new techniques for thyroid surgery, and they're very exciting. Um, some of them are through very small holes in the front of the neck. There was a very uh, exciting development called robotic thyroid surgery that used incisions outside of the neck to introduce instruments toward the thyroid gland. 
especially for patients who are very worried about having a visible scar. Um, there is now a, 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 a very cool technique of removing a thyroid gland through an incision in the front of the mouth, again, avoiding a visible, a visible scar. There are even other kinds of treatment of thyroid cancer that involve using an ultrasound and inserting a needle into the thyroid cancer and either heating the needle with something called ablation, which can be done with a laser or radio frequency or microwave, or injecting ethanol or alcohol into um, either new or residual or recurrent thyroid cancers. So these are all options that patients have today that weren't available 20 years ago. So this is hugely, hugely uh, improved. And the new guidelines that just came out um, compared to the last set of treatment guidelines in 2015 represents continued de-escalation, continued pulling back with how aggressive we are surgically and in other kinds of treatment for well-differentiated thyroid cancer. And with that, I'd like to um, conclude my, my presentation and uh, move on to our next speaker. And thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sibelik. That was an outstanding presentation, quite stellar. And actually, you really set the stage for today's program and really um, have brought people up to date with the uh, the newest treatments available. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. And um, our, our next speaker is Dr. Um, Christoph Misikowicz. And Dr. Misikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Clinical Director of Research in Head and Neck, Clinical Director of the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, the Tisch Cancer Institute, Chairman of the Oncology, Pharmacy, and Therapeutics Committee. And Dr. Masikas will be addressing updates on additional treatment options for thyroid cancer, new treatment approaches for refractory thyroid cancer, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masikowicz. So good afternoon, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure to be in this panel again and speak about the thyroid cancer. So I'm going to take you on the journey of uh, thyroid cancer, but uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to use some metaphoric explanations to illustrate the process, something that you can relate to and something that maybe is going to make the cancer easier to understand. So what we do with the thyroid cancer, and John, as was pointed out before, I like to use the metaphor that thyroid cancer or any kind of cancer is sort of like a weed that you may see sometimes in the garden. And your first reaction, what you're going to have once you're going to see it, you're going to get the shovel and you're going to try to dig it out. And obviously in the surgical world, you obviously undergo the surgery. And the purpose of the surgery is to remove this entire weed, entire cancer, um, without leaving any roots behind because you know if you're going to leave any of them behind that it can grow, it can turn to a cancer. The second thing what you kind of, uh, you want to make sure that weeds, they can drop the seeds, right? And those seeds are grossly not visible to the human eye and it's not like the surgeon did miss them, but they can at some point turn to a cancer. So the purpose of the surgery is, surgery is to make sure that entire weed or entire cancer was removed and many times 
in order to make sure there's no seeds that are left behind, they're still alive, we give something what is called radioactive iodine, and it's, this is something that is done by nuclear medicine. So basically, the first stage of, of the purpose of the treatment of the thyroid cancer is to remove it surgically and making sure that nothing, just I'm going to say, nothing was left behind. And obviously, sometimes those treatments are not successful, and this is nobody's fault, it's just the nature of the cancer. And I'm going to now discuss the iodine refractory cancer. And basically, you can imagine, based on my own introduction, that iodine refractory cancer is the one that uh, was surgically operated. It was the one that the radioactive iodine uh, was given. But unfortunately, despite all those uh, methods, unfortunately, the cancer kind of survived, and it's still growing, which is not very common, but it does happen. And this is the moment when the patient comes to see me, and I'm a medical oncologist, to discuss what are the other treatments that can be offered to the patient that unfortunately the surgery and the radioactive diadine was not successful. And I'm going to just discuss all of them. So one situation is that and uh, in this kind of situation, we can do what is called the active surveillance. Some patients, they decide that we know that uh, there are some treatments available, but if the, tre if the cancer is slow growing and kind of sleeping, then some patients, they opt for active surveillance. And basically how it's done. So we, we evaluate the cancer with kind of, I would say, four tools. One is the physical exam. So I see the patient and I try to determine if the cancer is growing or getting bigger. The second, the patient is giving me the complaints and they say if they have any pain, if this pain is getting worse. It kind of gives me the signal whether the, the cancer is still sleeping or maybe not actively growing. The third one, I can measure the amount of cancer in your blood. It's called a tumor marker. There's something called thyroglobulin that we check in the blood and it's giving me a number. So I can see how it was and how it is. And based on this, I can decide or evaluate if this cancer is truly progressive. But the best test is some kind of the image, meaning that we're using CAT scans or PET scans in those situations, and we measure the cancer knowing how it was and how it is, and just to see if there is any difference in size. So the first option is active surveillance. The second option is there are some pharmacologic intervention that we can use as we treat the cancer. And I have to say that there, there, there has been a tremendous uh, progress done in this field because if I'm going to think about my thyroid cancer 20 years ago, the only thing that was available, it was chemotherapy. And it was extremely toxic and it was not really working well, but there is nothing else to offer it. So obviously many times we opted not to treat the patient because the price was too high. But what has happened that with the technological advances, now we don't use chemotherapy most of the time in thyroid cancer and differentiated thyroid cancer. What we use, we use what is called a targeted therapy. Basically, those medications are capsules or pills. Those are oral medications that we give in patients in which the thyroid was already treated surgically, in which the iodine was already used, and unfortunately, those both treatments failed. And how we treat those patients? I would divide them in two kind of groups. The first group is what we do, we do genetic analysis. And what it is, this genetic analysis? Basically, what we're trying to find out is cancer has some mutations. And those mutations are like locks, the ones that you have in your door. And sometimes, if you have a lock, and I have a perfect match key, and in this, in my world, it's a pill, then I can apply it. And what it does, basically, this pill, it has to be a perfect match 
and you must have this lock, basically it can turn off the cancer. It can put the cancer to sleep. It's sort of like giving a sleeping pill to a cancer every day. So this treatment never stops actually because you don't want your cancer to wake up. Every day you're kind of giving this treatment and again in the metaphoric way, a sleeping pill to keep it in sleep. And there are some mutations I'm going to mention, and they're going to be strange sounding, and I don't want you to remember them, but you're going to kind of uh, make an assumption, or you're going to know that it's kind of intuitive. So I'm going to say it. There is a possibility that the patient can have NTRAC mutation, and I know it sounds strange, but there is a pill called NTRAC inhibitor, and we have two of them on the market. We have RAT mutation that can happen, and we have RAT inhibitors, and we have two of them on the market. And then we have the BRAF mutation, and we have several medications. We call them BRAF inhibitors. As you can hear it, that the mutation matches the drug, but it has to be a perfect match. The beauty of this treatment is it's very personalized, meaning that patients have the specific mutation. We give this medication as the oral medication that the patient takes for the rest of their life to keep the cancer under control. And most of the time, those medications, they don't have the long list of side effects. But they have some, as obviously most of the medication. So basically the treatment is that if you have the mutation, you take this oral medication in the form of the capsule or tablet or sometimes a liquid, and you just have to take it every day to make sure that the cancer is put to sleep. And you continue this treatment until it works or unless you have developed some side effects. And in those kind of situations, they have to speak to the physicians how, to, how it can be addressed. Quite commonly what happens in thyroid cancer that unfortunately not everybody has a mutation. Some patients, they don't have any mutations at all. They kind of don't have any lock in their door. But there are still treatment options and we have two medications on the market. One is called Thurafinib, the other one is Lenvatinib. And they're quite effective and they can be used even in patients uh, where the cancer is iodine refractory, was surgically removed but the cancer still persists. And those medications are also oral and it's not a chemotherapy. And even though sometimes they can have some challenging side effects, but those challenging side effects can be addressed by the physicians. Many times with the dose reductions, many times with some other medications. So I think it's still um, worth trying and pursuing those treatments. So those are the two groups of treatments that we give to patients with iron refractory cancer. One of them is based on the mutation and it's sort of like a perfect match, as I explained, or the other ones if patients, they don't have any mutation. And I'm going to cover some other topics because I'm, many times I ask, I know that immunotherapy kind of storm into oncology world. And many times I'm asked if a thyroid cancer is good to be treated with immunotherapy. And I'm going to just give you, again, metaphoric explanation. The immunotherapy, the way it works, that it kind of stimulates our immune system and tells, tells our immune system please go and search for the cancer. And our immune system will only going to be able to uh, find the cancer if it's going to be widely visible. It's going to look different like the rest of the tissue. It's sort of like in the metaphoric way, if I'm going to be sitting right now wearing the flashy red jacket, I don't know, pink so socks and red pants, you're going to spot me out because I'm going to be probably looking different than anybody else in the, in the crowd. So you're going to be, okay, this person looks different. Our immune system works kind of in the same way. But the cancer is very tricky. The cancer is trying to kind of melt into the crowd and is trying not to be recognized. It's sort of like, you know, putting the fake glasses, the mouthwash, and say, I want to stay quiet. And unfortunately, thyroid cancer is good with that, meaning that 
it kind of blends into the natural tissue and unfortunately the immunotherapy was not very successful when it was used in differentiated side of cancer and that's why we don't use it. So the last thing that I'm going to say is that all those medications and I, I feel kind of the privilege to see the huge progress when I started uh, after the fellowship when I had absolutely nothing to offer to thyroid cancer patients and I have so many treatment options. Uh, so it makes me very proud. But at the same time, this progress couldn't have been done without presentations like this one, but also without you participating in clinical trials because those medications have to be tested on patients. Many times they look promising and only after they safely tested, we can give it to you. So. I would say if you hear about clinical trials, don't disqualify it. Speak to your physician because you may be offered something that normally couldn't be offered uh, in the commercial space. So I would strongly encourage you to do so because you can help yourself and you can help other patients that are probably now listening about the thyroid cancer. So uh, this is how I'm going to conclude the first part. In terms of the televisit, so this is the new technology that we kind of use in the daily practice and it kind of helps us because many information can be discussed on the phone. I'm going to give you an example. I said that one of the parameters how we uh, follow on the thyroid cancer patients, we check the blood. But many times what I do, I give prescription to a patient, the patient go to the local lab, the blood work is done, and then I will unfax the result and I can through the televisit to discuss the management and address potential uh, management of, the, uh, of this particular case. Or sometimes even if patient suffers from some side effects uh, of the medication that I'm giving. So I think, uh, especially in the COVID situation as we had a couple of years ago, the televisit absolutely is a good way to kind of uh, many times guide our patients in terms of the management and what can be done to help them. So this is how I'm going to conclude my, uh, my speech and I'm going to be open to any questions you may, have, you may have. And again, thank you all for listening and I thank you the panel for participation. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Masiklis. That was outstanding and I know there'll be questions for you during um, the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Maxwell Philip Kligerman, and Dr. Kligerman is Otolaryngology, Emory Clinic School of Medicine, Faculty Emory Physician Group Practice, Emory Healthcare Network. And Dr. Kligerman will be addressing clinical trial, uh, trials updates, how research increases treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kligerman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege and honor to be here. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to chat with all of you and share some information and answer any questions that you may have. Um, and also thank you to the prior speakers, Dr. Masekowitz and Dr. Sieblick, for their wonderful presentations and helping to set the stage a little bit for my talk here. Um, so the first topic, uh, some clinical trial updates, how research increases treatment options. You've heard a little bit about this from both of our speakers, and I just wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive about the ways that clinical trials today are helping both in terms of escalation of our treatment, so giving us new options for treatment that we may not have had before, as well as um, opportunities for de-escalation of treatment. That means um, perhaps doing less aggressive treatment options uh, with fewer side effects, but still having equally as good of outcomes. Um, so to highlight that, I wanted to zoom in on two particular studies and trials. Um, one is an 
currently ongoing trial, and that's a study looking at a medication called linvatinib. Um, linvatinib, and forgive me if I dive into the weeds just a little bit here, um, but I think it's helpful to have that understanding. Um, this is a medication that is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Tyrosine kinase is effectively a enzyme or a protein in the cell that um, helps give the cell, the tumor cell, energy. And when it's mutated, it can provide excessive energy and um, can tell the cell to divide out of control. So linvatinib is a medication that can help block or turn off that enzyme. Um, and so there's a new trial that's ongoing that is looking at giving this medication to patients with very advanced um, forms of papillary and follicular thyroid cancer preoperatively. So in cases where um, surgery is still an option for these patients, but surgery might be quite extensive or it may be really hard to be able to fully remove all of the cancer cells, um, or in cases where removing the cancer cells may cause damage to other nearby important structures. Um, there's this study that's ongoing to give that medication before surgery to see how that impacts outcomes, to see how we're able to perhaps get more of the cancer cells out or how we're able to save important structures. And so that's an example, and you know, I'm sure that it's going to be many years until we get the results of this um, study back, but things, trials like that help lay the foundation for how we think about and um, treat these cancers and how we make changes in our treatments. Um, another study and uh, another aspect of trials that I wanted to highlight is um, about active surveillance. And so that's kind of instead of escalating treatment, again, this is a de-escalation of treatment. And you've heard a little bit about active surveillance from our, our prior speakers, and I wanted to dive in on this just a little bit more. Active surveillance specifically refers to where we know there's a small cancer that's there, but instead of jumping straight to surgical excision, and so we monitor the cancer carefully for any growth and changes over time. Um, and then only if we see concerning changes or concerning features do we operate on it. And this may seem kind of counterintuitive or a little bit scary, the idea of um, not jumping straight to surgery, but there's actually a, a lot of good um, data that's been studied for a very long time, um, originating mostly in Japan, actually, for this observation of what's called uh, micropapillary carcinomas, that's um, small cancers that are about a centimeter or less or, you know, almost the size of a marble or smaller. And the idea is that over the course of most people's or many people's lifetime, at least with these cancers, um, it may actually never pose a threat. Many people live their whole lives and may never know actually that they have these cancers. It may not spread beyond the thyroid gland. It can just be contained there and they may live long and healthy lives with no knowledge of that. Um, and so I wanted to highlight, there's a paper that came out recently from um, where I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they're doing monitoring for papillary thyroid cancers up to 1.5 centimeters in diameter. So, you know, historically, we, um, the first thought was to go ahead and operate on these patients or on um, when we see these uh, cancers. Um, but it's become more and more common in the United States to actually observe or do active surveillance for a centimeter. And now we're actually looking at doing active surveillance for up to one and a half centimeters. Um, and there was this study where they looked at about 500 people over the course of 
four years, and the vast majority of people had no change whatsoever in the size of um, the cancer. So in about four out of five people, there was no change. And in about 10% uh, of people, there was a change. It grew slowly. And then in those cases, there was um, almost always an opportunity to intervene, to um, operate, um, and still be able to do the same surgery that would have been done initially. And even in a small percentage of people, there was a decrease in the size of the tumor, uh, which is very interesting. Um, so I just wanted to share that as, as kind of an exciting update for things to think about in terms of both more treatments becoming available, um, but also uh, more options becoming available, too, in terms of active surveillance. And then um, combining the last two topics a little bit, I was going to chat about quality of life concerns and the importance of communicating with the medical team. So as we all know, outcomes with thyroid cancer tend to be quite good, um, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it can have an impact on um, both short-term and long-term quality of life. And so I wanted to, to just highlight a few of those important features and things to be on the lookout for and uh, ways that we can work with you and you can work with your physicians to help mitigate that. So some common things that we'll see are um, symptoms related to thyroid hormone replacement medication. So if the dose is too high, it's common to have increased anxiety or stomach upset or tremor. If the dose sometimes is too low, it can be common to feel fatigued or weight gain or have dry skin or sometimes have more of a depressed mood. And so we do like to check these uh, labs frequently, and it's important to have an endocrinologist who you have a good relationship with to be able to meet and get those labs checked on a regular basis. Um, and then as Dr. Sieblick was mentioning uh, before, there has been a movement um, in terms of de-escalation of treatment of doing more hemi-thyroid surgery. So that's where we just remove half of the thyroid for cancer instead of the whole thyroid. And that's uh, really been very helpful for many patients who are able to keep half of their thyroid and keep um, their, naturally, their natural hormone. Um, but it is important to know that still as many of, as about one out of three people who have half their, thyroid hormone, half their thyroid gland removed may still need replacement medication because it's still just not enough to keep up with the body's demands. So I just mentioned that if um, you, you or you know someone who's had half their thyroid, um, just important to still get your routine labs and, and check that thyroid hormone level. Another common symptom that we may encounter that people have is uh, what's called chronic siloadenitis. That's basically inflammation and um, pain around the salivary glands and irritation from the salivary glands. And that can happen commonly following radioactive iodine treatment because that can um, sometimes cause some scarring in those glands. And so if that happens, you may notice it with eating um, prior to eating foods or when uh, particularly when dehydrated. And so to help with that, certainly let your healthcare provider know, but um, doing things like salivary massage to help promote the flow of saliva, um, massaging those areas, drinking plenty of water, using a warm compress, those are um, some um, uh, easier things that are helpful. And then if it becomes a chronic issue or it leads to a series of multiple um, problems that need to be treated with antibiotics, then there are um, procedures that we can do also to kind of help open up those salivary glands. Other things that can be common are um, trouble swallowing or voice changes after surgery, and that can be quite common and can take a little while to resolve. And so if you're still having persistent problems or um, notice changes with that, then um, certainly let your healthcare provider know. We have a host of resources uh, to be able to help with that, both, um, both additional procedures, but also just 
um, working with various therapists and specialists, our speech and swallow therapists who we work with are um, really wonderful and fantastic and have um, tons of exercises and um, ways to support and help with that. Um, and then I wanted to conclude with just a mention of a really exciting study that is underway right now. And it'll be a little while until we get the results back, but this is a study that's taking place in the Netherlands, and it's called the WATCH study. That's the well-being after thyroid cancer. And the goal is to look at the course of physical and psychosocial outcomes um, over a long period of time, over decades, actually, for people, um, uh, thousands of people who are treated with thyroid cancer. And the goal is to look at how day-to-day -day things, how our physical activity level, how our um, mood, how our mindset, how our employment, how our support network impacts um, our, our recovery and quality of life after thyroid cancer because we know that these things are certainly fundamental and really, really important. And so it's exciting that we'll have um, this study designed to be able to kind of help uh, help give us all that information moving forward so we can um, help you and help help all of our wonderful patients um, as uh, we get through our treatment. So with that, I'll conclude, and I'd be happy to take any other questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Trickerman. That was an outstanding presentation, really quite stellar, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden, and Ms. Bairden is an oncology dietitian with Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my pleasure now to this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bairden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy, so your quality of life. Your diet might be modified. We've heard some things today already about some of the possible side effects from thyroid cancer and um, potential side effects from the treatment, but um, one of the things that you can um, be sure to do is tap into your healthcare team. Know your healthcare team members. Um, we heard some of the potential side effects, including things like dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, you may have some fatigue. There could be some weight changes and even some changes in your taste or decrease in appetite. In some cases, um, a feeding tube might be needed if you're not able to consume foods by mouth, if your swallowing is really impaired. But like I said, it's important to communicate with your healthcare team. So a dietitian is part of the healthcare team. Um, the dietitian can help with addressing such things as um, modifying your diet, potentially addressing the texture of the diet. If you're having trouble with specific foods, the dietitian can help on alternatives to those foods and picking things that may work a little bit better for you to try. Ideally, a plant-based diet um, is recommended for all cancers, even for prevention, um, during treatment, and during survivorship. I get a lot of questions from patients after diagnosis, okay, what should I be doing with my diet? What should be different? And um, one of the resources that I really love to share with patients because I feel that it's um, patient focus, it's really easy to navigate, is the American Institute for Cancer Research. They have a lot of information, they have recipes, they have specific information about different um, types of cancers, and um, just a really good way for patients to sort of have something tangible to go to that is a reliable evidence-based resource. 
So when nutrition needs aren't met, um, some of the things that can happen is with weight loss, um, the loss of muscle can also occur. And muscle is important because it gives us the energy that to do the things that we enjoy. It gives us endurance. It gives us the ability to get up out of chairs and walk around and be active and even swallow. So muscles are used in your swallowing process. And if you have a, a significant um, shift in weight and a weight loss, you can lose muscle during that time. So you want to be aware of any um, unintentional weight changes. So there are medications a lot of times that the doctor will give you um, to assist with some of the side effects you may experience. Make sure you understand how to take your medications. Um, have somebody with you. Bring an extra pen and paper. Um, know when you're supposed to take it. Are you supposed to eat with it? Do you have to wait to eat um, after you've taken it? Know these things about your medications. If there are specific foods that are giving you trouble, Keep a list of those. Bring it to your meeting with your dietitian and your healthcare team. They can help you better if they know where you're struggling. Hydration is something that we often miss off the list. We're so focused on eating and weight, we forget about this. And hydration is actually very important. Dehydration can amplify a lot of your side effects, okay? So they can dehydration can actually make you feel worse than you would if you were hydrated. It's that simple. And hydration is something that we kind of take for granted, but if you're having trouble with swallowing or consuming food, sometimes this is something that gets um, also reduced. And so um, fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. Water, milk, sports drinks, fruit juice, all of that's considered a hydrating substance. Um, but general guidelines is people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glass glasses of fluid a day, and water is the best way to hydrate yourself. You will want to talk with your healthcare team, especially if you're going under any specific treatments about if there's a shift in your fluid needs, like if you're going through radiation or something along those lines, um, just talk with your healthcare team to say, hey, I'd like to know exactly where I'm supposed to be on this, and they can give you some direction. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and your journey through your cancer treatment. Know how to reach them, know who they are, and, um, and utilize them. That's what we're here for. So I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Thanks so much for letting me be part of today's presentation. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was a wonderful presentation, and um, we so appreciate your um, your um, your being on this call today. Just really wonderful. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. Um, and our our next speaker is um, Mr. Gary Bloom, and Mr. Bloom is executive director of FICI, um the um, Cancer Survivors Association, the Cancer Thyroid Cancer Survivors Association Inc., and he's going to be describing to you the free programs and services of Psychi. I'd like to thank Cancer Care for developing today's great program and for inviting Psychi to collaborate. Psychi's uh, free programs and services are available to anyone worldwide who has been affected by a thyroid cancer diagnosis. We've produced educational programs that are all medically reviewed, uh, starting with our comprehensive website, which is www.thyca.org. We also produce and make available handbooks on many types of thyroid cancer with more in production, all as well as our low iodine diet cookbook. Uh, all of these products can be downloaded as PDFs or you can email your request for printed copies to thyca.org. ICO also provides numerous patient-to-patient -patient support programs 
including more than 30 virtual support groups, some of which are topic-specific, in-person support groups, and topic-specific discussion groups through Inspire, Facebook, and Groups.io. And finally, we produce an annual hybrid international thyroid cancer survivors conference every fall. Because we know everyone isn't able to join us, we record the medical content sessions and make them available on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash at Thyca Inc. For additional details on everything I've mentioned, please go to our website, www.thyca.org, and that's spelled T-H-Y-C-A, or you can email us at thyca at thyca.org. And with that, I'll turn the microphone back over to you, Dr. Mesner. Thank you again. Uh Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Bloom. That was really wonderful. And what a wonderful organization. If you haven't taken advantage of it, please do. It's just a great organization. And I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide um, really um, um, a number of services to people from both practical and financial assistance to um, counseling services to um, uh, Oh, to, to um, uh, support online support groups, telephone support groups, um, just a host of services, uh, um, resource navigation, and of course these workshops. Um, you can access Cancer Care Services by contacting 1-800-813-4673 or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, in addition um, to that, um, I now would like to just bring um, all of our speakers on board. And I'm going to ask all of our speakers to give, provide a takeaway to everybody in the audience today. Um, um, and um, so I'm going to ask um, uh, Dr. Sibelik if you could um, uh, actually um, begin by just giving a takeaway to the audience of what you hope they've learned from today's program. Thank you so much. and, and um, I think the overarching takeaway in 2023 and going into the future is that thyroid cancer care choices and treatment planning is patient-centered. It should be personalized exactly to you, your circumstances, your needs, your goals of care, what you most value in your life, what your family values for you. So I think in 2023 going forward, Thyroid cancer care has so many different approaches to it that the patient should be at the center and should be at the head of the, I call it the committee. The patient's the chair of the committee, and the committee contains the surgeon, the endocrinologist, especially the medical oncologist sometimes, uh, nuclear medicine doctors, um, speech and language professionals, nutrition, the committee is large, but the chair of the committee is you, the patient, and your family as your advisors. So that's my overarching message. Thank you. And, um, and Dr. Masikowicz. Uh, so hello. I just want to thank everybody. My message is going to be that uh, many times what I see, uh, I would say that the fear can be overwhelming. If you have a, a thyroid nodule, if you have even a diagnosis of cancer, don't sit on it and do nothing. And I understand that many times we have this fear uh, to hear the information that obviously that you need the surgery or maybe you need the iodine or maybe you need some kind of medications with the names that you never heard of. Uh, don't be overwhelmed. I think we're all here uh, to help. 
and we're all here to be honest, and we're all here to kind of guide you through the process and kind of make it easy to understand that you can be part of this journey, and we want to be with you and kind of guide you and help you. So I would say if you don't know what to do, just speak up and, you know, ask your friends, ask your spouse, ask your kids, help me, take me to the doctor, be with me, or or neighbor, anybody, and I think this is what I'm going to say, and we're here to help. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Mystikowicz and Dr. Kligerman. Um, I think my, my takeaway is just what an exciting time this is in the field of thyroid cancer in general for both us as physicians but, um, and healthcare providers, but also as patients too. There's just so many um, new options becoming available and so much ongoing research and so many treatment options that didn't exist even a few years ago. And I see that trend certainly continuing into the future. And um, I, I think it's just a really, um, really exciting time in terms of development and, and opportunities for treatment. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Ms. Bearden. I would say um, know your healthcare team. Um, you know, you are the center of your healthcare, and knowing how to access the healthcare team who is supporting you is very important. Get their business cards, keep a filing system so you know how to, um, you have it organized in a way that you can access it easily. And realize what each healthcare member team does and how um, they can best support you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, Mr. Bloom. Well, everyone said it so eloquently. Uh, I guess the part that I would add is uh, this, take, take a deep breath and make sure that you don't rush. Uh, make sure that you understand what's being pres prescribed to you. Um, everyone's talked about how we as the patient, yes, I'm a patient, how we are the, the captain of the ship, so to speak, uh, but we are also the layperson in this. So uh, we have to digest all this information, and that means make sure you ask lots of questions and, more importantly, that you understand the answers and, and know that, at least in the majority of the cases, you have time to make yourself comfortable with all the answers before you act. Thank you. Excellent. And um, so I, I actually just want to thank everyone for participating today. Um, I also um, want to acknowledge that I know many of you have questions um, that we actually had such a very full program today that we didn't get to all your questions. So I just want to say something about your questions. Um, first of all, for those of you who have questions that you wanted to ask, for those of you who um, have a question that you're in queue with. And for those of you who actually are thinking of a question, I would advise all of you to go back to Treating Healthcare Team. You've learned a great deal today, and we hope you'll take what you've learned back to Treating Healthcare Team and ask your question of your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of many different people. It includes both your, your surgical oncologist, your medical oncologist, um, your um, uh, your oncology nurse, oncology social worker, your um, your um, the dietitian on your team, um, the actually the the um, financial um, navigator and patient navigator, and there are many people on your team. So when you bring up a question to your doctor, you can ask your doctor any question you may have, and they'll route you to the appropriate person on their team. In addition, you do have. FICA to contact, 
Um, it's a wonderful organization if you haven't taken advantage of it. And there also is the wonderful organization of Cancer Care that you can take advantage of those services as well. So as we conclude the program today, although I know it's tempting to feel you're alone, I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and we are here to help you. And I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.